Hey Grandview, are you ready for episode 3 of ViewCast? Well, I sure hope so, because you're listening to it right now. I was joined for episode 3 by Dr. Kevin Gannon. Dr. Gannon is a history professor here at Grandview. Dr. Gannon was recently featured in a Netflix documentary titled 13th. The documentary goes in depth about what the 13th Amendment actually is. We touch on that today, among many other things. I hope you enjoy it. This is episode 3 of ViewCast. Dr. Kevin Gannon, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, I saw the documentary 13th, and I honestly didn't know that you were going to be in it, and I was just watching it, and then I was like, oh, I know that guy. Right? <laughs> I know him. And then I saw you around campus like after that. Um, that's what I want to talk about first. Sure. The documentary 13th. How, how did you get involved in that in the first place? Did someone reach out to you, say, we want you in this documentary? Uh, they did, yeah. And it's actually kind of a funny story. My involvement started because of Twitter, essentially. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. And I had written a, a blog post about slavery in the U.S. Constitution that apparently kind of circulated fairly widely uh, around certain quarters of Twitter. And, you know, I didn't know that. But, you know, I, it had been posted. And then the next day after it went... Uh, I had a direct message from Ava DuVernay's uh, assistant saying, we're working on a project uh, that kind of touches on some of the same things that you wrote about. Would you be interested in interviewing? And of course, you know, I'm in my living room reading this like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, and then a month later, I'm in a studio in the Bronx in New York City being interviewed on camera by Ava DuVernay, which, and then has, you know, that's been quite the experience and it's been an honor to have been involved in the project for sure. And that documentary has been huge. Right. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary. Um, it's, yeah, it's Netflix really went all in in terms of using their platform to amplify the documentary and its message. And, you know, of course, having Ava DuVernay, you know, associated with it as the director. I mean, her, you know, she's a, you know, she was a rising star at the time and now a full-blown, you know, Hollywood power player. She's an amazing director and, and really an amazing person, too. So did you get to go to the Oscars then? Not to the Oscars, no. Um, but the, the documentary did premiere uh, at the New York Film Festival uh, at the Lincoln Center in New York City. And Netflix did bring uh, about seven or eight of us who appear in the documentary up there for the premiere. So we got to do the whole red carpet, car service, after party deal in New York City. It That's was, awesome. Yeah, it's not something that I you know would have expected as a history PhD, right? Yeah, Grad and, school definitely didn't prepare me for that. <laughs> and I mean, you had a big role in this thing. Like your your voice and what you were saying was a, a big chunk of it. Well, th- yeah, it's, you know, it was weird uh, when the when the preview came out for it. Someone sent me the link, uh, the YouTube link for it. They said, hey, the preview for that documentary you're in is, is out. I was like, oh, cool. So I watch it, and the first thing I hear is my voice, which is the most bizarre experience I've had, right? And, you know, I, I would not have wanted to edit that film down. I know I interviewed for about an hour and a half straight. Everybody else, you know, I'm going to assume is roughly the same. And they had a hard limit of 100 minutes plus all the documentary and archival footage they mm-hmm. wanted to do. So... So, yeah, they had to cut a lot of stuff from a lot of smart people. Um, I'm just happy I was in it as much as I was. Yeah, it was extremely cool seeing you in that. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about the 13th Amendment itself. Mm-hmm. And so I have it right here in its true form. And it goes, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. And then here's the kicker. Mm-hmm. Except 
as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Right. So, so the accept is the big problem, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's the loophole, right? Like, like the, the beginning, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. That sounds great right there. Mm -hmm. And then the comma, except... So, so what's the biggest problem with this, with this amendment? So, you know, we like to tell ourselves the story that the Civil War ended slavery, and the 13th Amendment is, is what we refer to with that. It says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, asterisk, you know, shall be constitutional, right? And so the Constitution, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution ends one, what we might call, legal regime of slavery, uh, the system by which African Americans had been held, legally speaking, as chattel property in the in the United States since, you know, the earliest European settlement of, of North America. But it doesn't end the institution of slavery completely. And this loophole clause is what we talk about in 13th in the documentary that it basically allows a way for slavery to continue in all but name. Uh, so this is this loophole language is where you get the rise of mass incarceration because for, for white Southerners after the Civil War who wanted to preserve not just the economic institution of forced labor and enslavement, but the cultural uh, structure of white supremacy, the quote-unquote justice system is the way for them to do that now. It opens the door. You can keep somebody as a slave, as an unfree person, if they have been quote-unquote duly convicted of a crime. And then so you look at the crimes in state and local statutes throughout the post-Civil War South, and you have an enormous amount of offenses, including things like vagrancy, that are so broadly defined that you could essentially be arrested for a wide variety of what today we would call frivolous circumstances, right? And so it basically criminalizes blackness, uh, and it's a tool that's used by authorities in the former Confederate states to cling to as much of the system of slavery as possible. I remember uh, reading about a museum. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it had a bunch of plaques that had reasons black people were arrested on mm -hmm. it. And it like the year that they were arrested. And I remember reading a few, it was like 1945, um, uh, misinterpreting what his, what, his, uh, what his boss told him to mm -hmm. do and like doing something else instead. And then they got in an argument and then he got arrested. Yeah. And looking at someone the wrong way i mean stuff like that right and then they go to jail mm -hmm. and then they're in the system and now they can now they, they they're in this loophole right and if you look in the the late 1800s after the civil war you know the vagrancy statutes were the big ones you know if you spoke impudently to a white person if you did not tip your hat and walk to the other side of the street to defer to your betters if you could not prove your residence uh, if you violated a labor contract, if you were drunk in public, if you were any number of these things, you could be arrested for vagrancy. And the sentences and the fines were up to a year in jail in some states. And the fines were several hundred dollars, which if you were a poor black sharecropper who had been an enslaved person until a few years ago, you don't have that kind of money. And so in order to pay that fine, people's labor would be sold. You know, it was essentially like a slave auction. They would be sold into slavery. And this is the beginning of what you see of, you know, the chain gangs that dot the landscape of the South for the better part of the next century. It's really, really fascinating stuff. And then the, the introduction of private prisons, mm -hmm. when those came into play, it seems like things kind of took a, just a ramp up. And uh, we, I mean, we still see it today. Right. We, like, it is there today. It just, it looks different because it's... Uh, 
there's more words with it and you can mm. post about it on Twitter. But right. it's, it's alive and well and it's happening in front of us. And privatization of prisons, you know, kind of the outsourcing of mass incarceration is actually a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, it really picks up steam with the Reagan administration in the 1980s, the, the conservative Republican approach to a lot of what we might call public infrastructure was to privatize it for for-profit corporations. And we see that continuing with things like charter schools today, for example. But the private prison, private prison industry uh, is, is really problematic. There's no oversight. Uh, there's very little attention paid to training the guards or the personnel uh, with the emphasis on profit as opposed to rehabilitation. You have also, you know, they, they become nightmare, uh, nightmarish locations for those who are incarcerated within them. And there are some states where the majority of those who are in the mass incarceration system, and they are people of color who are the majority, are in these privatized facilities. And many of those states are the states of the former Confederacy. So there is a direct historical thread that connects a lot of this, uh, and it's chilling. And a lot of these crimes, these low-level crimes, it's stuff like nonviolent drug offenses, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of it is marijuana, you know, small possession, nonviolent offenses, uh, stuff that, you know, white college students get away with every weekend. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's just crazy that we can, we can sit here and talk about it and it's just still going on. So how do we, how do we go about this? How do we solve it? Well, those are great questions, right? Because Big it seems, it seems like such an overwhelmingly huge system and problem that you don't know where to start. Uh, but there actually are, I think, some significant ways that people are already working to sort of dismantle this system of mass incarceration. Uh, first, uh, you could make the case, and I, th and I support this case, that you should release nonviolent drug offenders from prison. You know, you should not be in a state or federal penitentiary for possession of a small amount of marijuana, especially given the fact that there are several states where that is now legal, right? So if marijuana can be sold legally in Denver, yet someone in Washington, D.C. can be arrested for small possession, you know, tell me how that serves the interest of justice, right? So that's one way to go about it is to, you know, do amnesty, you know, prison amnesty for low-level nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, the second, uh, as, you, as we talk about in the film, mandatory minimums. Uh, really kind of tie the hands of local prosecutors and judges in terms of working on a sentencing arrangement that would actually benefit the community and the, and the prisoner as opposed to, you know, kind of score political points. Um, so you can look at getting rid of uh, mandatory minimums, uh, alternative programs, uh, drug court and things like that for those with addiction problems. And then, you know, looking at, you know, getting rid of private prisons. Uh, this should not be something that's outsourced. This is a duty of the state uh, to provide for both safety and rehabilitation for our communities. If you're putting that out to for-profit companies, uh, you're basically abdicating a responsibility, uh, and, and that's that's a real problem. A real problem it is. And, I mean, your, your film, or I guess the film that you're in, it does a great job of highlighting that. And so, I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, 13th. It's incredible. Um, and you get to see one of your favorite professors in it. <laughs> um, so you were recently published by the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. I read that one. It's it's crazy, man. It's it's crazy that uh, Donald Trump will say something like what he said. Mm -hmm. I, I have it here. I can read it off. What, what it is four score and seven years ago. You know when uh, Abraham Lincoln made the Gettysburg Address speech. The great speech. Did you know he was ridiculed and then excoriated by the fake news and they said it was a terrible, terrible speech? And then you kind of you rant on that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about how you you address the p- political climate a lot on social media and on mm-hmm. your website. So talk a little bit about um, like where that comes from inside you. Well, you know, I'm I'm pretty vocal, you know, and it's it's you know it's probably pretty clear to any sort of even you know casual observer where I might stand politically, and I think it's important to say. And I make this clear with all my students, too. You know, there is no litmus test in any of my classes. Um, But I also think that it's important to understand if you're a student, you know, your professors are real people, too. You know, we have ideas and deeply held beliefs about things like a just society and the role of education in that society. Uh, And I think it's dishonest and it sells you all short, you know, for us to try to pretend that those things don't exist. Um, Where I draw much of my energy from as a historian is this sort of, you know, it's a very frustrating time to be a historian because a lot of the, we've seen this before, right? We've heard this song before and it's almost like we're sort of blundering. You know, people say history repeats itself. I don't think that's true. Uh, but as Mark Twain said, history does rhyme a lot. Uh, and if we're not going to learn from the past and if we're going to pretend that those elements of the past didn't exist, then we're never going to approach the ideals that we say are important for our society. Uh, In my view, U.S. history is largely the story of laying out really impressive and very good ideals about liberty, equality, democracy, uh, the right of citizens to participate in in the governance of their own society, and then the failure to live up to those ideas for much of our history. And that's the struggle. That's the motor that drives much of the conflict is this gap between ideas and reality. And so what we see today and, you know, what, what Trump's example shows us is, you know, this kind of disregard, this, this very, you know, casual relationship with historical evidence and historical facts. And, you know, a society with historical amnesia is capable of, of some really rotten things. And we have examples of that in, in the 20th century and, and before. And as a historian, you know, I feel like my public role is to, is to, to go on record against that and to to, to dem- there is another story that we can tell about ourselves. And it may not be the happy, you know, sort of, you know, sanitized version of our past, but it's the honest version. And we need to reckon with that if we're ever going to make progress. I think your website is uh, a great platform for people who are interested in engaging with that, that perspective right there. You have so much content. It is, it's a deep with a lot of content uh, like that. Is that where your uh, Washington Post uh, article came from, or did they reach out to you? About they, they reached out to me um, because of some Twitter posts that I made. Okay. <laughs> but I do often, a lot of times what I'll post on my site as a blog entry has its origination in a social media post or in a conversation that I've been involved with on Twitter. Um, I have a very uh, close-knit sort of professional community uh, in both teaching and learning and in history uh, with which I engage. Uh, of course, you remind me that I haven't updated my blog in a few weeks, so I need to <laughs> I need to put some more <laughs> content. Right. Up I didn't mean to put that. No, that's on. all right. Yeah, it's that point in the semester where we're all busy, right? But it sure is. But I started that as an outlet to sort of, you know, to help my own writing practice. I've, I have a lot of writing projects that I do, and it helps me keep that regular daily writing practice up. If I'm able to have a, a place where I can put ideas that maybe aren't, you know, fully articulated enough to be publishable somewhere else, or they're not a journal article or a newspaper article, but there's something that I do want to get out there just to kind of play with things. And so that's what the blog became was a a sort of a platform for that. And it's become a really important place for me to, to talk through and to think through some of the issues with which I work. 
Well, they're really good. I like well, them. Thank you. I, 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 I read them for like an hour and a half last night. And um, so you're doing a lot of stuff on Twitter, so you must be dealing with a ton of trolls, huh? You know, I, some. Um, I think our administration here has probably gotten a few hate emails about me. Um, you know, and Twitter's a weird place. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Internet is weird, right? Um, I do get trolls. Uh, I don't get nearly as many um, as many of the women or people of color that I know. Sure. Um, and and I think that, you know, Twitter does have a problem with that, especially for, for people from those communities. Um, I don't know if Twitter doesn't. In fact, I know Twitter doesn't do enough to help mitigate harassment on the platform. But I think it's important as someone who's a white male and a tenured academic that I use that platform to, you know, to call that out and to, to call attention to the fact that not every voice seems to be treated equally. Uh, but yeah, there are some people on Twitter who have uh, taken issue uh, with some of the things that I've said before. Yeah, I believe it. Um, we talked a little bit before we started, but uh, pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what that is because uh, it seems to be a big part of who you are. It is, and you know, one of the things that I love about being at Grandview is that you know, this is a, a university that, you know, a lot of small schools talk about being student-centered and where faculty are here to teach first uh, as, in, as the center of our sort of professional calling. But a lot of schools will say that and not necessarily live that. And, and Grandview does, you know, our, our actions and values align uh, very much in that way. And I've always wanted to be a teacher, uh, even before I knew I wanted to teach on the college level. Uh, coming to Grandview has, has given me the space to do that. And in my current role here, um, I direct the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. And so I work with faculty and professional development. I work with my colleagues about teaching and learning. And, and that's given me the chance to, to be in classrooms across campus and to see some of the amazing things that my colleagues are doing with their students. But it's also given me the personal opportunity to really dive into uh, scholarship and literature about teaching and learning uh, and to really ground myself uh, in this idea of pedagogy and, and what is it that I'm trying to do here and what is it that higher ed in general is trying to do you know, with and among college students for our society. So when, when you look at something like a, like a giant state university that has lecture halls with 400 people, uh, do, you think, do you think that that's an effective method of teaching or do you think there's a time and place for that? Could, could you give some sort of uh, insight with your, with your understanding of pedagogy? Sure. Well, we know from the research that just straight lecture is not the ideal way uh, to, to teach if you want students to learn meaningfully. Um, at previous institutions where I've worked, I've done that. You know, I taught at a university where my average class size was 490 students. So I've taught in those big lecture halls. And what you end up doing is speaking to about the 20 or so students kind of in the front and the center that you make eye contact with regularly. And if anybody else in the room is learning, it's, you know, kind of by accident more than anything else. You know, that being said, you know, the large state universities do have an array of resources um, that, you know, can benefit students. But it's trying to strike that balance between those, you know, having those resources and access, but also quality teaching and learning. And I think if, if I were a college or a prospective college student today, I would be looking at smaller institutions like Grandview where I know that I would be in a class with a small community where I could actually have a relationship with my classmates and the faculty member as opposed to sort of being warehoused for the first couple of years of my college experience. There's like 2,000 people, I think, on Grandview's campus, yeah, roughly. In yeah, that probably ballpark. not even that much, yeah. And um, 
some of these big universities, I mean, it's 60, 70,000 people. Mm -hmm. And it's just hard to imagine how that how that can work. Even if you have a gigantic university, how can everybody be getting that uh, quality education? But you see it here, you see a lot of people um, and their their class size is 10 people, right? I have a couple classes with six people, mm -hmm. you know, and I've, I've been in classes, my biggest class here, I think I've had a 30 person class, right? And it's yeah, about as big as we get. Yeah. And I, I just feel like I've had a I've, I've had a connection with all of my professors and I've been able to they know my name. I know theirs. I can talk to them. I can email them. And I just don't know how that how you can replicate that with 490 students. And yeah. I, I think I think there's a problem with it. And I think maybe some of your basic level classes, you could pull it off. But when you get down into the real into the weeds with it, mm. into the deep critical thinking, I think you need someone with the expertise that you can talk to. Right. And I think you can do that at a large university if you have the drive and initiative and the knowledge to know not only that you should be doing that as a student, but how to go about doing it because it's a much bigger environment. And it can be very you know, difficult and intimidating to sort of find those faculty mentors, whereas at a small institution here, you know, those relationships are established you know, pretty quickly mm -hmm. and from the 100 level classes all the way up. Um, my own undergraduate was a kind of a medium-sized state school. James Madison was about 12,000 students when I was there. It's about twice that size now. But um, I was able to develop relationships with faculty once I moved into my major courses, which you know were smaller uh, seminar sections of about 20 people as opposed to a large you know 100-person lecture, which was about typical for the 100-level courses on my campus. But that took a while. Um, and, and I had friends who kind of showed me how to do that, kind of showed me the ropes, so to speak. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to do that on my own. And so a smaller school like the one that we're at here, you know, those opportunities are there for the taking. And, and it, I love seeing students take advantage of that because to me, that's what it's all about. You can't have quality teaching and learning if there's not a relationship of honesty and trust between faculty and students. Mm -hmm. I have uh, a lot of my friends who are who go to bigger state universities uh, have kind of agreed that they feel like they're being robbed a little bit when they're sitting in big mm -hmm. classes like that. And I can honestly say I've never had that feeling when I'm sitting yeah. here at Grandview with, and I look around, and I only see 15 people. I don't feel like I'm getting robbed. I feel like there's someone who's giving me their insight mm -hmm. and I'm able to take it or I'm able to not if I don't want to. But it's, it's got to be it's, I mean, something's got to happen with these mm -hmm. big, giant universities. Right. Well, and I'd also point out, too, that, you know, it's it's easy to sort of slag on an Iowa State and say, how could you be warehousing, you know, 300 students in a Psych 101 in a lecture hall or whatever. But really, if you look at the way that public education is being, and especially higher ed, is being funded now, you know, ever since the 1990s, we've seen a decline in terms of how much states are actually uh contributing to overall budgets for universities mm -hmm. and you know so without the resources to hire more faculty for example you know you're going to have that student faculty ratio that necessitates uh you know these large mm -hmm. lecture classes uh, about 75 percent of all college and university faculty in the united states whether it's two-year or four-year are adjunct faculty or part-time faculty wow. who are often paid extremely low uh, wages per class many of them teaching at multiple institutions just to sort of put something together because the tenure track jobs, the full-time gigs that, you know, that I was lucky enough to have and, you know, and my colleague, full-time colleagues are here, that, you know, those are increasingly scarce and a lot mm -hmm. of it comes down to simple lack of funding. You know, it's, it's a starvation of resources and ultimately what that does 
is it degrades the quality of education. You know, you can't learn in a class of 300 the same way you can in a class of 25. Uh, and so the financial choices we make, whether it's the state government or the institution itself, say a lot about, you know, what, what they think is possible with higher ed. Who has the quote, um, show me your budget and I'll tell you what your values are? Yeah, Joe Biden's quote. Yeah, Biden. don't tell me what you think is important. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you think is important. Yeah, budgets are moral documents. Yeah. I you know, they're statements of principle. It speaks volumes uh, to the education system as a whole. I think the fact that we have 75% of professors who are adjunct and tuition prices keep rising mm -hmm. and the student loan debt is getting out of control. Mm -hmm. It's like, where is this going to go? It's, it's right. kind of kind of scary, I, I would say, for like the next 20 years. I don't, I don't really yeah. know what's going to happen with it. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people do. Um, the way the trends are, are now, and they seem to be accelerating, it's, it's a pretty bleak forecast. I mean, it's an unsustainable trajectory the way we're yeah. on now. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk about online learning as something that's you can do online learning well. Uh, you can have online classes where you have a relationship between faculty and students and their meaningful experiences, but those take even more resources to do right than a face-to-face -face class. And so people who are getting into online ed are doing it to save costs. Well, that's not going to replicate what we think a good teaching and learning experience should be. So just like we talked about with privatized prison, right, the more we give up our public responsibility for things that we deem important and good, the, the more those things are going to suffer. Uh, and, and we're at a real critical point for that right now. It's tricky. It's, yeah. it's real tricky. I mean, what do you do? It's, it's so hard. Well, you know, a lot of people say, oh, taxes are awful. Well, you know, I, I'll pay taxes if it gives me paved roads and good schools and well-maintained sewer systems, right? I think those things are important. Um, I think we need to to understand that government is not some distant entity that's trying to take our stuff. Government is our representatives making decisions about our collective resources. Uh, and we have the power to elect people into that government who make the type of decisions that we think are important. So I think with increased engagement, you know, voter turnout is at historically low levels. With better voter turnout and better participation, we'll see uh, public officials be more accountable. But right now, they don't have to be because only 25% of people vote in, you know, state elections, for example. I'm really glad you brought up voting because I did want to talk about a few things. Um, there's something really weird going on in Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, the Republican candidate is basically suppressing uh, minority voters. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably know what's going on better than I do. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Okay, so the gubernatorial race in Georgia. Um, the Republican candidate is Brian Kemp, um, who is the current Georgia Secretary of State. Uh, so as Secretary of State, he is his office is in charge of state elections, just as the case in Iowa. It's the Iowa Secretary of State who, you know, funds polling locations and is responsible for the, you know, the administering and the counting of votes and things like that. Well, Georgia has what's called an exact match voter fraud prevention program. Um, they've, you know, the idea that there's massive voter fraud everywhere has, has been used, and even though it, it's not backed up by the evidence at all, uh, has been used to ram through uh, much more stringent voting uh, ID measures and such that have the practical effect of suppressing the vote, but mostly suppressing the minority vote. And so this exact match program in Georgia basically says that if the name you have on your ID doesn't exactly match what's in the voting rolls, you're purged because that would be quote unquote fraudulent, right? Uh, well, if your name has a hyphen or if there's diacritics like an accent mark or uh, the symbol that goes over an N when you pronounce Nunez, for example, 
Uh, if there's on one and not the other, you're off the roll, right? Mm. And so there's about 53,000 votes right now, or voters, that have been removed from the voting rolls in Georgia, over 70% of whom are African-American. Now, the African-American population of Georgia is only about 30%, so this is an extraordinarily disproportionate impact. It's also worth pointing out that this exact match program was struck down by the federal courts as an unconstitutional infringement on voting rights, but the legislature in Georgia, controlled by the Republican majority, repassed the program in time uh, for, for this election. Uh, and the Democratic candidate is Stacey Abrams, an African-American woman. Uh, so you can see all of the dynamics that we saw you know, in the earlier ages of voter suppression in the 1950s and 60s uh, coming home to roost. And in fact, Kemp in Georgia has blamed the fuss on, and he used the phrase, outside agitators to the state, which is what the white segregationists of the 1950s and 60s used to describe civil rights workers who were coming in uh, to try to register African-Americans to vote. So deliberately echoing uh, that previous period. That doesn't make any sense to me that the person who's running for the race is able to make those kind of decisions. That truly mm -hmm. makes no sense to me. And, no. the and the fact that it's controlled by Republicans and they're able to make those decisions even though the federal government said it's illegal, I, I just don't get how, how we, I don't get how that works. Mm -hmm. I don't get how they're able to go ahead and just do that kind of stuff just because it's the, the way of the law right. and they go through these processes. Super confusing right. to the layperson, but they're well, able to yeah. do it. And there are calls for Kemp to recuse himself or to resign as Secretary of State. There's also legal challenges that are being uh, mounted. It's also important to point out that the voters who are on that roster can bring supplemental forms of ID to their polling location and override that removal. But what you're basically doing is you're putting two or three additional steps in that voting process. And, you know, I think it's really important to realize, you know, beware the party that does not want you to vote. You know, beware the party that does not want you to vote, because that says a lot about what they think of their own ideas and how much popular support that they really have. You know, and in this country, we like to, you know, talk about both sides and we like to approach partisan issues as, oh, well, you know, one side does it and the other side does too, or both parties are equally bad or something like that. But when it comes to the active techniques for voter suppression, like what we're seeing in Georgia, what we're seeing against indigenous Americans in North Dakota, there's only one party that's doing it. Uh, a, this is not a both sides thing. Uh, this is an active program of suppression that's being undertaken by the officials of one party. And again, beware the party that doesn't want you to vote. Is it feasible for us to vote online? Do you think that could be a thing for us? I feel like there would be a much higher voter turnout if you could vote online. Yeah, yeah well, there certainly would be. Um, making it secure, on the other hand, is the yeah, problem, that, right? I, I hear you. And, you know, voting machines that we have now that are connected to the Internet with, you know, poor security protocols are a really big worry for election observers. Um, but we do have to think about how we increase voter turnout. You know, we make it pretty difficult to vote in this country, regard, you know, and if you're a person of color, even more difficult. Um, Making Election Day a national holiday would be a great start. You know, if we can have Columbus Day, certainly we can do Election Day, right? Um, if voting's that important, we should have the day. So people who don't have their own transportation or who can't take off from work and be able to afford the hours that they would miss can vote. So if we do that uh, and if we allow, uh, you know, there are a number of things that you can do, but I think, you know, Election Day as a national holiday would be a good way to start. I think that's a really good idea. And, I mean, there are people who work five days a week, Monday through Friday, mm -hmm. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and uh, polling places close when you get yeah. off. Uh, or, you know, imagine if you're paid by the hour, right? 
and you're paid say 10 bucks an hour and you don't have a car so you have to wait for the bus to go to the polling location and then wait in line to vote you're talking probably five or six hours out of the day or maybe even the whole day that you have to take off and if you're dependent on every hour's wage for that paycheck is that really feasible for you to do and so we have a voting system that works against the ability particularly of those lower on the socioeconomic ladder to actually exercise this right so at the current juncture you don't think it would be feasible to vote online? I would like to see us explore that possibility. But again, you know, security would be the most important part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, online voting could help, you know, but as a halfway measure, even if you're not uh, for online voting, increasing the number of polling locations. Uh, if you look at the way that polling uh, stations are distributed now, it's not very equal. And there are urban areas where you've got polling locations that are expected to serve a much larger number of people than in suburban or rural areas, making it, again, more difficult to vote. You know, if you're going to have to wait in line for two hours to vote, are you likely to, to do that? Uh, and if, again, it's neighborhoods largely with people of color and poor and working class people where you see the fewer polling locations that are, that are established. So, you know, two things that we could do right away uh, to help increase voter turnout and make it easier to vote would be increase the number of polling stations, especially in urban areas, and make Election Day a national holiday. Uh, and then from that basis, we can talk about other ways to, to you know, move elections into you know, the 21st century, but also do so in a way that makes sense for safety and security. I'm really happy they did the early voting here. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's something that I don't know if other campuses or other uh, groups or anyone else is doing it, but mm-hmm. I think that's something that was super effective too, right. because we had lines yeah. of people who were wanting to vote here early because yeah. it's it's a pain to fill out an absentee request form, mm-hmm. all this stuff, wait for stuff in the mail. It's it's multiple steps that, right. and we all have a lot of stuff to do where it can easily slip one of our minds, mm-hmm. you know. But the fact that we were presented with these booths and they said you can vote here today. Shows yeah. your ID. You know? Well, and, and I took advantage of it because I'm going to be traveling on election day. So yeah. it was wonderful that I could just walk over the skywalk and come down here and vote. It took me about 20 minutes, yeah. right? And yeah, I think, you know, again, it's younger people, it's college age people that have the lowest voter turnout, uh, you know, the 18 through 30 range, lower than any other demographic group in society. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, college students or people who are, you know, young people working in what we might call precarious jobs makes it a lot more difficult um, for this. But it, think, think about if the voting turnout among 18 to 30-year-olds in this country doubled. Mm. Think of how different elections would look and how our elected officials would be thinking in terms of attracting the vote. There's a lot of power in this you know, current college generation, and I hope to see it tapped. I do too. Um, before, before we wrap this up, I want to talk about one thing that is very, very apparently uh, another part of your identity. I mean, it's in the name for your website. And when you just look at you, you see them. It's the tattoos, right? <laughs> You're the tattooed professor. Uh, so talk a little bit about I mean, I think we're getting to a point where almost everybody, if not a majority of the people are kind of relaxing on mm-hmm. the tattoos. There yeah. was a time where it was like, you won't get a job if you have tattoos on oh, your yeah, arm. I, you I heard that a lot. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure you did. Um, I, I think people overall, in general, are kind of cooling out about the subject. Mm-hmm and the topic in general, but 
What do your tattoos mean to you? Or do you just like tattoos? Uh, well, a little bit of both. You know, some of them have personal significance and are kind of symbolic of things. Others are, you know, hey, I think this looks like a cool tattoo. You know, and I've been lucky to be uh, good friends with several really talented artists who've, who've helped because I have no artistic ability, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I couldn't draw a straight line if you spotted me a ruler. So having people to sort of turn that vision into a tattoo that looks as, as a good tattoo should is, is, is I've been very fortunate to have that. Um, I first started getting tattooed in 1991, the summer after my freshman year in college. And at that point, you know, not very many college students had tattoos. And if they did, it was a small one, you know, somewhere that could be hidden. And I had, my first one was on my upper right arm. Uh, and then over the next few summers, I got bigger pieces as well. In the summer of 93, when I got my first, I got a dragon on my right forearm. And I remember thinking, you know, I've gone down to the forearm, right? You know, if I ever roll up long sleeve, you know. The yeah, elbow. yeah, it was. No. It was. It was like crossing the line there. And, and I remember at the time, I was like, yeah, this is awesome. But. But I heard a lot of that, like, you'll never get a job. You know, I was certainly the only person in my Ph.D. program who had tattoos, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but, yeah, I think especially over the last 10 years, you know, they're, they're so ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And I think it's great. Um, but certainly, you know, when I first visited here to interview, um, you know, I wore long sleeves and a jacket. And I did not take off the jacket or roll up my sleeves. And that was before I had my hands tattooed. So you couldn't tell I had tattoos. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I hadn't been here before. I didn't know if people would freak out or not. That was a legitimate thing. I think if I were interviewing for a position today, it might be a little bit different. Sure. I love tattoos. I think they're a great form of self-expression. I mean, if there's something really important to you, um, I, I have uh, I have a Celtic Q tattooed on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Me, my brother, and my dad all got it. Yeah, see, that's cool. And, I mean, there, there's... There's no reason why something like that should be looked down upon. And I think we're definitely moving past that. Um, and I think it's good that we're moving past that. Same yeah. with piercings, like gauged ears, stuff right. like that. Silly silly hairstyles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just, I'm glad that we're yeah. getting to this point. Yeah, I am too. I like, I like living in a society where you can express yourself in a variety of different ways. Um, even if it's not everybody's cup of tea, right? You should still have the right to be able to do that and the right to pursue something that's meaningful for you uh, where you can also give back to your community. Um, so any any situation where, you know, someone someone feels comfortable enough and is able to express their identity like that is is where we should be as a community, absolutely. We should, we should respect people's choices uh, on how they present themselves to others. You know, that's something that only we can decide for ourselves and how we choose to do that is a choice that we would want to have for ourselves. And so we should extend that to others. All right. Now, some reoccurring things that I do on the show. I I told you to uh, come with something that Mm -hmm. something insightful, something that you think is worthy of people checking out book, article, Mm -hmm. podcast. So what what is something that you think people need to check out? Well, we talked a lot about, you know, race and mass incarceration and, and social justice issues. Um, so, you know, the plug for 13th, it's streaming on Netflix. I'd obviously recommend that people watch that. It's a, it's a powerful documentary. I would say that even if I wasn't in it, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing uh, the job that Ava and her crew did. Um, a lot of the material uh, in portions of the documentary, certainly about the rise in the 20th century of mass incarceration and race, comes from a book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. Uh, Michelle Alexander is prominently featured in the documentary as well. She's a law professor at Ohio State, and The New Jim Crow is 
uh, a devastating indictment with you know more evidence than you could possibly ask for about the the intersection of race and mass incarceration. Uh, and then finally, one of my favorite podcasts uh, on matters of race and culture is uh, the Code Switch uh, podcast on NPR. Gene Demby and a couple other folks uh, do a really, I think, smart and informed take on matters of race and in popular culture today. Awesome. Okay, now this is the last one. It's called Rattle Them Off. All right. All right. I'm going to hit you with a few questions and just give me your answer right away. So free association. Huh? Pretty, pretty, pretty easy questions. All right. Here. All right. Would you prefer a book or an article? book netflix or cable cable fruit or fruit juice Ooh, fruit juice a ballpoint pen or feather and ink <laughs> i'm a historian <laughs> what do you think i'm gonna say feather and ink all the way pizza or pasta oh pizza for sure hawkeyes or cyclones uh gamecocks, gamecocks <laughs> from south yeah. carolina not not into these I, I i root for them both cool as, as an yeah. adopted iowan <laughs> adopted we're glad to have you yeah. and then uh do you prefer the Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule or the Tuesday, Thursday? Well, that's a good question. I like the Tuesday, Thursday. I like the longer period to really dive yeah. into things and have those richer discussions. Me too. I think this was a really good conversation. I think people across our campus need to hear it. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I think uh, people will hear it. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. You're a fascinating dude. Ever since I saw you on campus, I was like, wow, this guy's definitely interesting just from looking at you. I mean, the tattoos will do that. Right. And then uh, when, I, when, I, when I turned on 13th, I was watching it with my friend. I was like, I know him. I know him. They were like, what do you mean? It was Grandview University. I know him. Right. You know, so that's pretty cool that you're in that. Um, what's your Twitter so people can? So I'm look at, at the tattooed prof on Twitter. Um, and that's I, your website too, right? Yep. I try to stay on brand and simple, right? All right? So, yeah, the tattooed prof. Check him out. Check out Netflix, the 13th, and uh, stay tuned for more episodes of UCAST. Thanks again for doing this. this oh, thanks awesome. for having me. I really enjoyed it.